Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether you feel like things are on the up, or maybe you're feeling fed up, or maybe you've found that special someone who's never going to give you up, this is the Beyond Ring Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Can you hold your breath for 12 seconds? Give it a try. It's not too long, roughly 15 heartbeats for the average person. Not enough time to boil a kettle for a cup of tea or even order a coffee to take away. But it's not that long. That's been about 12 seconds now. You can breathe again. It's not long, is it? But it's long enough. Long enough to change the very history Imagine standing among some sand dunes on a freezing cold day. Imagine you're on the east coast of the USA and it's December, just after the turn of last century. Imagine it's a Thursday. Imagine you're among company. You are the youngest of seven people present that day. Present to witness history. A giant leap in the accomplishments of humanity history. A pivotal moment in which humankind released itself from a shackle that had previously held fast. Just imagine it was you who was there on the day the rites finally did it. It only lasted about 12 seconds, but there it was. The first flight of a manned-powered aircraft. They had invented something totally new. They made real the mythological flight of Icarus, the ridiculed fancies of Da Vinci. Before them, on that day, no human had flown like that. Certainly no one from around here had ever seen anything lift a man into the sky like that and allow him to be counted among the birds. Of course, they didn't see themselves as inventors so much. They didn't see themselves as the geniuses history would record them as. They were bicycle mechanics. They saw themselves like editors, rearranging and sharpening up the work that others had already begun. But then, they were the ones who defied gravity. The gravity holding them to the earth, yes, but the gravity, too, of conventional thought that said it couldn't be done. The gravity of all those who failed before them. The grounding forces of doubt, despair and unbelief. They were the ones who looked around at what was emerging. They were the ones who picked through the information and determined what was useful. They were the ones who pushed and pushed until human history tumbled over that tipping point and the world and our place upon it among the stars was never the same again. Imagine that. Just imagine.
The lens we are exploring today is emergence. You see, emergent thinkers see that which has not yet been thought of. Emergent thinkers look for signs of life and not distracted by death. They look forward rather than backwards. They are attuned to possibility and opportunity rather than threat. Emergent thinkers see what is not yet, but what is becoming. Think about how much our world and the way we live has changed in recent times. 120 years ago, not one person had flown in an aircraft. Nowadays, we can fly into state for a business lunch and be back before dinner. Well, 30 years ago, computers were heavy, desk-sized contraptions that work in isolation from each other and were the property of businesses for work. Today, almost everyone has a powerful worldwide connected device in their pockets or worn on their bodies almost constantly. What was once science fiction or fantasy is now so widely accepted it's almost boring. The way we live our lives, our understanding of the universe in which we live, and the availability of information and connection has undergone an utter transformation. Phyllis Tickle, despite her name, is not a character in the Mr. Men series. She was a profoundly insightful American speaker and author, particularly in the fields of spirituality and religion. In her work, she noted that throughout the last three millennia, that every 500 years, religion undergoes this significant shift, which she describes as, as a kind of sort of rummage sale or garage sale. It's a naturally occurring pattern old ideas, beliefs and ways of operating are tossed out. For the church, it's a massive time of change and upheaval, out of which a new refurbished and revitalised Christianity with new forms and a new focus emerge. Think of animals who shed skins or shells. Think of the rhythm of autumn which routinely ushers in a shedding and a withering as, as part of a really normal and anticipated process of death and dying. Well, the same natural process occurs for our institutions and for our churches. And just as those shells or skins evolved at a particular time to serve a need and a certain set of conditions, the conditions and environment doesn't stay the same, but changes. And for that reason, a cracking open and a shedding occurs for the purpose of finding a new, freer, fuller, authentic way of being in the world. So for us today, as conventional faith narratives and belief structures and outdated theologies are breaking down, who are the Wright brothers amidst us? Those sifting through the wisdom and practices that have served us up to this point, determining what to preserve and what to discard. Who are those capable of seeing and imagining new ways of gathering, of belonging and being that until now have never existed? Who are the heralds of the next great emergence? Who are those helping us to fly? Our first guest is a man academically renowned for paying attention to the new and the unfolding. Philip Clayton is a professor and academic whose main field is the intersection of religion and science. He's a process theologian and sought-after public speaker on contemporary issues in ecology, religion and ethics. Specifically, he's met with groups predominantly in America, but also around the world, exploring emerging and emergent forms of sacred community. We caught up with Philip Clayton during our road trip through the US, just after he'd delivered a fascinating talk exploring the parallels between the spirituality of the millennial generation and Quakerism.
Well, Philip Clayton, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here, you guys. Now, look, we saw a presentation of yours very recently Mm -hmm. on millennials. Our Mm -hmm. ears pricked up. You've been doing a lot of research of late Mm -hmm. about millennials and their spirituality. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you're discovering? Mm -hmm. I'm discovering an absolutely precise no one the hell knows. (laughs) (laughs) There is there is no clear answer, and what happens is the age of the person responding is the biggest factor for knowing what they're going to say. So we get lazy, we get antisocial, we get selfish, right? A lot of baby boomers like to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, wandering, uh, unable to connect, and then anti-institutional in every way, so they'll never work with anybody. That's the antisocial part. And then we get the opposite of that in every one of them, so I won't list that back. And the question is to figure out what's going on. Some people would say, oh, well, hell, it's all just relative, and there's no connection, there's no pattern, the word is some label by some government probably to store your personal information. Right? I actually think that there are some tendencies, and I think they're valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, at least with regard to religion, people who are departing and never coming back, it is the biggest sea change in the way, at least in the English-speaking world, that people relate to churches in particular ever. So, last word is that there is something that emerges when people leave the structures and the institutions and the isms. Mm -hmm. And that thing that emerges is, I would say it, closer to the free-form nature of wandering of a certain first-century rabbi who really interests me as a post-institutional, indeed anti-institutional guy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So you're seeing some of the trends that are naturally emerging amongst the millennial generation as echoing some of these, uh, we we use the term pre-Christendom models of spirituality. Before the word Christian could be used, uh, where the label was people of the way, uh, and or people on the way, which I like even more, going back to a guy that couldn't be categorized or boxed, that I can be fascinated with without having to say, I have no interest in the Buddha, no interest in Hinduism. I actually have a lot of interest in that. Uh, I love that free form, uh, uncontrollable, untamable uh, way of teaching and living. Mm. My next book is called Jesus Without the Dogmas. That intrigues me. Mm. So you're saying, perhaps talking about reflecting uh, people of the way, Mm. so perhaps more of a focus on practice than Mm. on belief, perhaps? Mm. That's clear. I mean, not only are there multiple answers to belief, therefore multiple isms irreducible, but basically the whole idea of isms has died out. I mean, somebody should do a podcast about wandering someday. It would really be (laughs) cool. I'll get on to that. Could you guys get going on that? (laughs) That is uh, a place beyond any box and beliefs are all boxes mm. yes you guys i'm sure i've used on the podcast before um the three b's mm-hmm. right when i was a kid it was belief behave belong and i actually remember they had this little list it was a Presbyterian church and these lists of things you had to fill out and if you got the right answers on these you know fill out the form oh, wow. you got free grape juice ah. and, and a little bit of bread or <laughs> some sick. dumb wafer that's a genius <laughs> plan i know and so listen what i had to do um and we know the answers. It was the pastor said it was right or wrong. Yeah. So um, who is God? Let's see if I can bring it back. It's been a couple of years. God is a spirit, infinite and, and unchangeable in his being and perfection. Wow. wow. And then you had to say, 
Nick's question, what are his perfections? Oh. List six. <laughs> and there were all the omnis, like omnibenevolent, omnipotent, omniscient. I don't even, most people don't know those of me anymore. And then they let you in. You had this big thing. Actually, I got some water dumped on my head. And then uh, you got wafers for the rest of your life, right? It cost you $100 a week or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, and then uh, for me, emergent communities have been the opposite. So you're together, you're telling stories, and it creates an ethos. I was with Nick Patton in Cape Town, South Africa, and he, at that time he was meeting with a group of about 35 people in this beautiful house on a hill looking at Table Mountain, and people just showed. And we showed a video clip, music about um, death, about dying, and then we talked, and then we had dinner together. Now, what if I was there for the first time? Um, I would learn how to behave from that community mm -hmm. they were teaching me. I felt, and after that, like I wasn't bumping into people or re preaching the four spiritual laws, then there was a behave, and then beliefs got sorted out, or actually often they're not even on the table anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And were, by implication, allowed to be completely different to yeah. all those who have yeah. belonged and behaved. Didn't matter, right? And, matter. and your Jewish background, you used to be Buddhist, yeah. you're atheist, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I actually think that's so freeing. That's such a beautiful space. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. But obviously threatening for, and I think I had a quote of yours, that this is not good news for the conservative evangelicals yeah. because there's no creeds, there's no isms, there's no boxes to tick. Yeah. You, you know, what does it mean moving forward? What are we likely yeah. to see? How but, might this yeah. manifest? Who do we give our wafer and grape juice to? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we're actually a great example to that is um, Mark Scandrett, whom you may know, in San Francisco, and he doesn't have a church. He has a Jesus dojo. Dojo is where you practice martial arts. Yeah. So folks come together and they talk and they read passages and then they walk outside. So they go to the um, Panhandle Panhandle District, which is where folks come up and Panhandle. They ask for money okay. and they give away money. Yeah. Just a kind of a statement of reversing the kingdoms mm -hmm. and then seeing what happens, huh. right? Or they go and talk to prostitutes in the middle of the night. Here, can we buy you a cup of coffee? We're not going to do anything to get you coffee. Mm -hmm. And then tell us about your life. Just listening, no judgment. You see, it's without categories. Yeah. So I think conservative, I'm sure I'm going to offend your listeners, but I think conservative yeah. evangelicals are in trouble. Yeah. Big trouble. And I think we agree too, but we're now on the journey of where are we headed and mm. how might we practice this faith? How might we yeah. embody this faith? Yeah. So uh, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, one of my favorite essays uh, is about the impossibility of faith and truth in the traditional sense. <laughs> and he uses a metaphor that for anyone who likes to wander or wander in forests, it's beautiful. Uh, it's called Holzwege, and a Holzweg is uh, an old farming road that wanders through, in his case, the Black Forest in mm. southwest Germany. And so I live there, and you leave the main road, you park your car, you go on in a bigger forest road, and then at some point you'll just see a little path almost heading off, and it wanders, and then it peters out. Like, there's nothing more there, and it peters out usually in a little bit of a clearing, and he called that a Lichtung. It was a pun. It was called that in the forest. Lichtung means the light comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Licht. But for him, it was the moment of seeing something. So you wander, you come to a clearing, which is like a little bit of clarity out of the fog of it all, you know, the wander, and then there's some light. Now, you can't necessarily say it's the divine light, you know, here I stand, Lord. There's some old hymn here, I am. You know, it's just, that's not going to work. But Lichtung, isn't that glorious? Where are you? Well, I saw something that lighted things up a little bit for me. 
Sometimes, um, now I'm really going to offend your listeners. It's a lover. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a podcast that really speaks to you. Yeah. Sometimes it's some guys you hang out with at a pub. So does it need, does the new emerging way need connection with tradition and with a tradition? Mm. Or can it be a grab bag of anything? And I don't want to use the term structure, but does there need to be some sort of framework to help offer some guidelines or some framing references? Yeah, so I have seven uh, conditions of orthodoxy. If you don't follow all of these in order, it doesn't count. (laughs) No, you you can't specify it, right? (laughs) You can't possibly. Do you need to connect with other people moving from online to offline? Yeah, at some point. Um, Do you need to have some framework? Yeah. Are there ones that each one of us like or think are atrocious? Yeah. Some people say it can't be, uh, what's the word, syncretistic. You can't just pull from a bunch of ones. You've got to have an identity in a single tradition. I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. You don't think that's true? I don't true. think it's true. So we talk a lot about hybridity and uh, hybrid identities. Maybe we'll talk about that. That's, that is syncretistic mm-hmm. by definition, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes it is reading the stories of, say, the Gospels. Sometimes it's thinking those stories for what they apply for radical action. How could you do a formula in advance? Yeah. It's our pub. It's us eight, eight guys or guys and girls, and we're we're following, looking for a lichtung. We're off on a holzweg. So in that synchronizing, the bringing together and the uh, uh, various elements of of what all the traditions offer, mm-hmm. are there particular practices or approaches that help undercut, you know, ego agenda or mm-hmm. simply grabbing things which are to our liking but you know don't challenge us too much mm-hmm. see you you're asking for specificity <laughs> you, you must be born in 1980 or something <laughs> feeling, right? so i'm from northern california and grew up there five generations actually and we as well just take this as a young guy we'd get in an old vw bus with a peace sign on the side <laughs> every stereotype you have about northern california is true <laughs> and we'd take this tiny little road to the beach and uh, a number were state parks, so we wouldn't go there. There was a one called No Name Beach that was in between the state parks. <laughs> and we'd park there. We'd go down. We'd make a fire. We'd make soup together. Some, ever, always somebody have a guitar. Cool. We'd sing songs that are like hopelessly old because they were cool. <laughs> and then the sun would go down, and we'd usually stand, arms around each other, and just observe it as it went into the water. The word God never got mentioned. You know, there's no altar calls into the water, no baptisms <laughs> at 30 degrees, right? And it was, it's glorious. Now, why would you rule that out? And why would you need to put a name on it necessarily? Right. We call no name religion. Mm. Well, That's no interesting. Name I've never yeah. tried that before. <laughs> no name spiritual. No, yeah. No it is something about the naming. I'm going to call it nameism. And uh, naming is. Uh, it's a weakness. It can be a crutch. Uh, so now I'm, I'm really going to offend your listeners because I recently wrote a book on the environmental movement in China. And I was trying to get people to realize that part of the government that really wants to turn things around. Uh, so at advice from friends, I called it organic Marxism. So here I am as an author of a Marxist book. And I sit in China. We sit around a long table, a round table, and we eat Chinese food. And then they serve this atrocious, what they call white wine, it's schnapps, right, and and drink way too much. Now, couldn't that be a kind of community that the environmentalists pushing back against now the country with the most billionaires in the world? Mm-hmm. Why? Why won't you say that that's a kind of emergent Chinese group? Mm-hmm. So is there 
language, helpful language in which to talk about God or the sacred that might better serve these more fluid, Mm -hmm. organic, emergent forms of faith. If part of their reason to leave the institution has been the clunkiness, the inability to reconcile the intellectual questions they're yeah, having. Clunkiness. That's a great... Never heard anyone use it before oh, in that good. context. But that, that really works. It yeah, the title of his next book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. But I got a footnote. You, you get half the royalties. Yes. Um, you would think, given what I've said, and I think the three of us believe, that there are no words for God and therefore the question is no longer interesting. And it's false. So you're saying exactly the, the opposite question. is interesting. No, no, it's it's false. You're actually right. It's false that people aren't interested in asking the God question anymore. In fact, they're far more interested than my pastor with this God is a spirit stuff. And it's amazing to see people moving through some of the classic concepts and reading the the recent books, not just the negative books like um, like Pete Rollins, How Not to Speak About God but the ones who are struggling. So as I meet with emergent groups at pubs, and we're, we'll have a book. And it might be, um, uh, it might be uh, a Death of God book. It might be Process Theology text. So there's something about moving through. And we know we're on a hunt. We know it's just not random. We're looking for something. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? To delve deep into this question of God. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I keep finding myself, whenever you say something, of then just going, oh, but give us some hints around that or what might it look like. Or yeah. I, I keep asking for the specificity. I'll go there if you want it. For the detail. I'll go there. So there is a divine force or source which lies before the emergence of the natural world and which is somehow its fate or destiny. Um, in allowing a world to arise or in creating a world this divine source i'll call it god just for the heck of it could call it different and so in freely creating a universe this god chooses to be in relationship with others outside itself and that means this god is essentially relational okay then there's evolution or emergence where god doesn't control so it has its own process through the single-celled organisms and the squids and the porcupines and the higher apes to the highest ape and the most brutal ape of all, humans. And then through the process of our creation civilizations and moral frameworks or massacring mass numbers of Jews and Muslims, which is more Christian habit, pastime, uh, up to the present. But at every instant, there's a lure toward the creative, toward something more foundational, and toward whatever ever is of deepest value. The lure expresses itself in the world around us. The divine is not separate from the world, but integrated fully, interpenetrating. And that is the position called panentheism. God, the world is within the divine, but God is also more than the world. Right? That's that destiny, that source that isn't just pantheism, okay. our world. And finally, uh, there must be some moments that make clear what is the nature of this divine. And some of those moments are secular and some are sacred. And I happen to think that God is revealed in a few prophets who somehow correspond to divine nature. And I'm a follower of a guy called Rabbi Jesus. And I find in that pathway, you may find another one, but 
find in that pathway a kind of call, uh, yeah, call, a narrative that can guide me in what I move through. And that's what I would look for in that picture. There's my theology in 90 seconds. <laughs> wow. Epic, epic. So I'm trying to rewind back through it and, and summarize that you're essentially saying that there's this there's this lure, there's this impulse and almost a trajectory of greater complexity, of greater unity, of greater creativity that just keeps emerging. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, but then we get to these crazy, interesting creatures called humans that are somehow conscious that we can somehow interact with, mm. you know, this thing that's happening. What's what's possible for us as humans that can work with the cells that are combined in the body that's me that can offer some agency and will and how does that intersect with the divine and with this energy and can we tap into it? Can mm. we work with it? Can we? The first thing is we can't kill it by being dualists. So if you stay our whole body, which is linked to the beautiful, emerging, creative world, teeming with uh, life forms around us, uh, and outside of all that is the pure spirit, and it's really dominant, and it's what matters, and forget the world. That's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So keep us embedded in the world, uh, but there's a space within that where we step back from the hustle and bustle and we represent first ourselves to ourselves that's called self-image everyone who's 13 or 14 with pimples suddenly look as if you're you're in the corner of the room looking down at yourself and your first thought is god i look awful you know i'm stampering before this girl i'm just trying to you know offer to carry a book or whatever <laughs> so that space opens up and then it settles like like a like a pond in the evening the waves go away and then we have this space and that's where the wanderings for me then take on their intense form. The ideas, it's meditations like this. The ideas are there, but you let them settle. And in that quiet, that place without moving, is, is a still small voice. I think that's the place where, where that inner spirit that longs for that something more, that wants to listen to the lure, can hear. If you walk out and say, I'm a prophet and write these words down, this book down, I'm not interested. But if you come back and said, I was just wrestling with an amazing idea that stuck, struck me as I sat on the edge of this lake at nighttime or by the ocean. And that's why I need a community. I want to sit down over a beer and talk about that. And then I want to listen yeah. to what you guys have had. Yeah. So potential practices for emergent communities are creating space to feel the lure exactly the reason why we can't be dualists is that we can't just head off into this experience and forget that we're embodied creatures and as embodied creatures we need practices and rituals mm. in this emergent community in cape town there were rituals they did every time uh, so i'm a quaker and we don't have communion or any established rituals so they emerge organically mm. out of this period of listening of silence of seeking to hear the voice of god then when we come together there are things we're naturally going to do i think the same thing is true of any community uh, there's practices and then they become spiritual practices and then they take some work they take some commitment mm. if you only commit yourself to the words you're still a dualist. You think it's all in your mind. Mm. But words and actions, starting from the embrace when you meet, right? To the eating and drinking together, which I think is essential. Mm. 
to the caring of one another's burdens. How does it go? And so fulfill the law of Christ. Caring of one another's burdens is a practice that emerges, and that one's huge. Mm-hmm. To the telling of our stories every time we meet. To the authenticity of speaking our mind, our thoughts here and now that are present. Not my resentments about y'all from yesterday or last week. So those practices, a lot of them that you named are, are really interpersonal, relational sort of yeah, practices. They are. Can't really be uh, as easily quantified or... It has to be authentic at the moment, doesn't it? Mm. If you mm. come with the equation from last week, maybe you don't want to be embraced this week because yeah. of some place you're at. Yeah. So whatever our first, whatever that, what, that was my greeting ritual, you say, this time I don't want to do it. And you know why it makes sense? I'm going to sound theological, but if you say that uh, the first move that makes God God is to enter into relationship with finite creatures, then our community mirrors that when we go deeper in relationship, when we know ourselves to be bound together. Mm. That can't go away. Bound together with with each other? And what about the relationship with other non-human animals and wider the wider environment yeah if we're inside walls we create an artificial situation that says hey it's only we that link with god Hmm. as a panentheist i have to look for and do find the divine in every place we take a vw bus into the top of the colorado mountains up rockies up some dirt road until it won't go any further i remember once my wife said both around the corner both paths are we can't we can't make it up either one and i saw a dip and a little flat space and gunned this 1986 bw bus somehow made it onto this it stops the dust settles the moon rises over the continental divide at 12,500 feet it's silent and there in this long meadow just after sunset are two deer and we take the fish that we caught earlier in the day set up a table have put out two glasses of wine and we share that space with the birds and the deer. That's something more sacred than anything inside walls. Mm-hmm. It can't be codified, captured, can't be repeated the next repeated week at even, the same right. time. Yeah. 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 So is your sense then for the movement forward, we need to be prepared to let institutions die and happily just let whatever emerges, emerges? Is that almost what you're... Don't we have to stop talking about the deaths of institutions? Can we leave it to the baby boomers to mourn their yeah. demise? Yeah. We have a bunch of strange ones. You probably don't have them in Australia called Rotary and Kiwanis and Masons. I don't know a millennial that wrings his or her hands and says, oh my God, there'll be no Kiwanis in 10 years. <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And by the way, building a community is hard. It takes creativity. It takes this huge commitment. And you can't be distracted all the time about that church that's for sale down the road. Mm. We've got some real work to do. Mm. I take the the climate crisis really, really seriously. Mm. Australia knows something about that. Mm. Yeah, big time. It's funny, though. Like, I'm someone that totally is on board with this and has always been on this journey of, you know, how might new forms of community and faith emerge? And yet there's something that bizarrely is scary or petrifying in terms of the lack of i don't know ways in which we can uh, institutionalize it in a weird way mm. there's actually just allowing 
a bunch of people to meet and share meal and share life. Somehow it falls short of what it could be. It could otherwise connect with more people or be a part of something bigger than itself. But part of what you seem to be helping me, invite me into is, well, does it need to be numbered? Do we need to know how many people are doing it and when and at what times? And or can it not just emerge in the way that it emerges and drop off when it needs to and then find other forms and mm. join other groups for a time if it needs to? And you seem to just be painting this picture that's much more fluid and organic and unbound. And that's scaring me. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's um, So we have to give a place for the people that are still mourning a home, a community, maybe a traditional church. Mm. Because some people are coming as a second generation that's never been in church. I was raised an atheist, so there was no church. There was nothing except these wafers for a few years. There was nothing to to worry about. So I know what we need to do. In an emerging community, just as churches have Alcoholics Anonymous and they come in, we're going to have, uh, what do we call uh Institutional anonymous, or uh, you know, church addicts are not anonymous. anonymous. It's going to be a small group, right? They'll meet in the basement. You know, (laughs) my name is Lucas, and you know, I'm addicted to Sunday morning services. That's all right, brother. We're going to accept you. You know, my name is Matt, and I have a hymnal in my bedroom. Oh my goodness. Okay, we're going to help you with this, right? We'll set you up with a sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I've I've been clean for twelve years. <laughs> and so then you guys, after a while, you come out of the basement and, you know, we hang together. Now, could it ever put down institutional roots? Brian McLaren and I and Doug Paget worked for a year. We got together on the phone and we tried to think about how we could find some network mm. among those who no longer fit, right? The frustrated evangelicals and the disgusted Catholics and the... Um, and SBNRs, right? Spiritual but not religious, who are now, we call them spiritual independents. And so we started to build, and Brian says it's directly, a kind of new set of institutions, which I think was where you're going. Mm, There's mm. something else that arises out the other side. Mm. I'm afraid of it. Mm. You miss it. Great. In our community, we're going to deal with that. Mm. And and for those of us who are still have parents in church or are connected with church, we dearly love the people who connect into that community yeah, and, and yeah. I, I want them in my kids' lives mm-hmm. as we grow. We want that intergenerational interaction mm-hmm. in community and mm-hmm. that doesn't always, that's not always, as you say, creating new community mm-hmm. is hard work. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like the charismatic movement some years ago where people would stay in their church and then on, I don't know, Sunday evening they'd go for these charismatic worship services. So some people stay and then they'll have another community that feels really authentic at another time. Mm. Others will leave, and this will be their only community. Mm. What, what if there are multiple ways to do it? Mm. Right? Mm. Totally. And maybe it's not dissimilar to the analogy of the internet or the web, yeah. in which we do just locate across the little links to yeah. various things at various times, and we actually need to see the whole picture of I, all yeah. the bits and ways I connect make up the whole of my experience rather than... Right. So some are going to, just as I go on one Facebook page or hang out more on Instagram than you do, yeah. so somebody may say, I've got this mo- node in my network. Mm. You know, mm. I, every other week I go with my parents mm. uh, to the church or something. Yeah, yeah. See, my nodes are to wander and to be in these communities around the world and to listen. Yeah. And my gift is to be a mirror and to help people see back give us a final word so if people are this 
disgruntled, confused, on the edge of their communities, but still deeply spiritual, deeply questing, pulled by this lure in some way. What encouragement can you give to them? Yeah. It, uh, go have courage. Don't wimp out. Sometimes uh, lurking on websites is a kind of wimping out. And I'm an introvert, so I don't really want to hang with you guys in present, you know? You're going to hand me a styrofoam cup with a red word that says visitor or something, you know? I feel like I stick out. Uh, but I have to take the courage. You say, come, you know, we're meeting in a pub, we're having a dinner. I don't want to go. Come on, come on. You actually have to really encourage some people to come. And then as I do this a couple times, I feel community and I'm addicted to you guys. And I really want to stay. I have to stay, even though I'm afraid of you. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, it's hard to sit there. I'm much more like my social media life. But I have to try it because I know I need it. And I know I can't do this quest alone. Plus, Sometimes I experience God. I'm sorry, but I have that feeling, and I gotta come and tell you, and hear what you've experienced. Well, you've good reason to be scared of us, but uh, <laughs> Philip Clayton, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for coming beyond Green. Thanks, it's great to talk. Yeah. The second voice on this podcast is Deshna Ubeda, another of the interviews we recorded live at Common Dreams in Brisbane. Deshna is the director of ProgressiveChristianity.org. She runs a transformational festival and is someone who's attempting to inhabit this period of great emergence and to create community amongst those who are experimenting and exploring with new forms and faith practices. My name is Deshna Yubeda. I'm the director of ProgressiveChristianity.org. Um, I grew up in a progressive Christian church and uh, pretty much haven't gone to church since then, since I left for college. But I continue to seek um, spiritual experiences, intentional community, sacred community um, in my life and in my work. We often ask, and this will help us hear more about who you are, is what is the value of the Christian story or the Christian tradition? How does it connect for you? I've had an interesting journey around that story. Um, as I said, I did grow up in a progressive Christian church. My father was the pastor of the church. So while it wasn't um, you know, a demand that I attend weekly, definitely was kind of just what we did. The Sunday roast wouldn't be there if you didn't go in the morning. <laughs> right. That's it. Um, so I was you know, that kid that sat in the front row every church Sunday um, and was loved by my community members there. I was allowed to get up and speak. I was allowed to sing and dance. I led youth group um, experiences, church camp, summer camp, uh, was a youth leader growing up. And so I had very meaningful, impactful community experiences there. One of my favorite memories of church was the time when we would stand at the end and hold hands and sing Alleluia. And I was always moved by that, even as a young girl. Um, often to tears. There was just that energy there that was created in the room that was very palpable. Um, but I didn't really relate to the, uh, the Bible. Um, and though I, I found Jesus to be an incredible man and teacher and of a way of being, um, for me, that wasn't really my soul story. Um, I loved the sermons and I felt very motivated by those. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, often, like, can we just maybe move on to another story now? <laughs> another book, for example? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so when I left to go to college, I was done with Christianity at that point. Um, and started uh, studying communications and film studies and just found those to be very dry um, and not meaningful. So I wanted to change my major and I thought, well, what's interesting to me? What's fascinating to me? And I found that the religious studies classes were the ones that I was the most interested in. Mm. So I got back into religion in that way and um, had to choose an emphasis. And so I chose Eastern Asian religions because those were the classes that spoke to my soul, especially Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and so I kind of went that direction for a while. I became a yoga instructor. Um, I was focused on international relations. And, um, and then, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, I get a call from, you know, the president of ProgressiveChristianity.org, who happens to be my father. <laughs> and he said, just come help me out in the office a little bit, you know, just a little bit. Yeah. And I was like, I don't really want to have anything to do with Christianity at this point in my life. He's like, just answer the phones, file some things, help me with accounting. I'm like, I really, really don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. Uh, but he convinced me, and that began this kind of, you know, circling back healing journey for me, where I began to look again at the stories. I began to look again at the Bible, um, and found that I was being just as judgmental <laughs> and close-minded as those people that were driving me crazy early on. And um, when we had to create, we decided to create a children's curriculum called The Joyful Path, um, we went really deep with that. And we brought up questions like who or what is God? Mm. Who was Jesus? What is the Bible? What is it used for? And that, you know, led me into a pretty existential, philosophical mm. inner journey of... Because um, this is material you're trying to help kids and parents of kids access. And teachers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it turned into really a very loving, mm. uh, lovely, a meaningful curriculum that mm. I felt completely proud and um, could, could gladly endorse for mm. children. Mm. And that kind of began me on a journey of what are we doing to spiritually educate our children in today's world? And so... I, I, I sort of, I sort of re-established um, a relationship with Christianity that felt more authentic mm. at that point mm. and um, more healed and realized that, wow, there's incredible wisdom there in those stories. And, and they can really mm. still be relevant, especially for those people whose soul it does speak to. Mm. So you walked away and then returned. What do you think you returned to? So I, you know, I still wouldn't call myself a Christian at this point, um, but I, I can thoroughly support the and agree with the progressive Christian path, which speaks of a teacher who taught a way of experiencing sacred oneness, of experiencing what some might call God or the interconnectedness of all beings or source or great spirit. So I think Jesus taught one way to that experience. Mm. And progressive Christianity is also um, <clears throat> inclusive of all people, which to me is very important. So any, also not just sexual orientation or gender or race or ability, but also belief system. Yeah. Also wherever you're coming from, whatever questions you have, whatever, whatever healing work you need to be, have done in that area, we're infirming and inclusive of those people. Um, and then, you know, the respect for other wisdom traditions is a key part of progressive Christianity that I, you know, 
happily mm-hmm. embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, there is so much wisdom out there, and it can we can kind of get lost in that spiritual smorgasbord or buffet, mm-hmm. in a way if if we try to embrace it all. Mm-hmm. But I, for me personally, it's really been about focusing on you know social justice, social transformation, the stewardship of the earth, you know, restoring and healing the earth, and continuing to seek, continuing to ask questions. So. My kind of, um, you know, AKA or whatever, otherwise known as name is Blissful Seeker. And that's actually the meaning of my name is Blissful Seeker of the Truth. Mm-hmm. And I've just, you know, embraced that in my older, you know, older uh, days of my adulthood is, mm-hmm. is um, this seeking. And, um, but not to the point of like trying to find, but just allowing the wisdom that is inherent in the world show up in my life and being open to when those moments occur and clearly show, you know, divine synchronicity and, mm. you know, mm. signs that I'm on the right path. Hi, I'm Faith and I'm five. When I get to your age, what will church be like? You know, we um, asked a lot of people that same question, both young leaders in religion and some of our um, more seasoned scholars and theologians. And I think the general consensus is it's probably not going to look like what it looks like today or has looked like. And I would say necessarily so. And I think that's because we're really moving toward an outside-of-the-box um, awareness, a desire to really be authentic in our self-expression and our experience kind of like, you know, choose your own adventure books. Like, we really want to be able to have a variety of options and, and, and be able to um, choose what really resonates with us and helps us grow as individuals and as a community. So I would say that probably one of the biggest things that needs to shift is the building and the business structure of a church. And I know that's hard because, you know, people, that's their living. I mean, my, my father was a pastor for 20 years. Um, but just the fact that you walk into a church and usually there's pews and usually there's the organ and usually there's a stage, right there, I'm turned off. You know, I, I want to sit and face people in a circle. Mm. I want to see nature. You know, I want to hold hands with the people that I'm celebrating or worshiping with. Mm. I want different expressions of wisdom and art and music and um, so I think it's I think that church in the future um, will be a little bit more, if not a lot more expansive and catered to the community that's showing up. One of the things I'm noticing is um, this new form of worship that I'm seeing in, in my community is a co-creation of the participants. Mm-hmm. So there's not really this them and us, them creating something for us. It's like, what do I have that I can share with you? Mm-hmm. And can I share that with you today? And then you can share with you, me your thing tomorrow. It's potluck, potluck worship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So being, I mean, I think that as human beings, we all have a unique gift to offer to the world. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what we're like seeking as we go through this life. You know, we get our job, we make our money, we do all these things. And then we're kind of like, just not really feeling meaningful and it's because we're afraid to off you know to to jump off that ledge and really just embrace what we want to offer the world um so i would say church would be more about a co-participatory experience um and you know ideally 
there is the space for creativity there. Mm. When you say you're drawn more to a choose your own adventure kind of kind of approach, um, some would some would hear that and critique it as oh that's just individualistic or that's just you know seeking your own pleasure. Um, but I, I, I like the way that you've used. Well, everyone's gifted. Mm -hmm. Everyone's given a unique and particular gift. And so I'm wondering, to that critique, would your response be along the lines that, um, well, actually, we're trusting in the spirit that's present and in the, the, the sacred that's present within each and every one of us? Yes. And as you find in life, those things resonate with other people, right? When it's infused with spirit, when there is passion there, that's when it catches your heart and your attention. When you see a musician on stage that is you know, completely passionate and connected to spirit in their work, that's when you're drawn in. So while I might choose, you know, yoga and aesthetic dance and drum circles and meditation as my church in nature or, you know, in a circle of people, there's going to be others that also choose that. And those are the people I'm going to find kind of traveling with me in my quote-unquote church mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I'm just all alone choosing my own adventure you know, I'm going to find co-participants, co-journeyers. And you find that those people end up showing up like, mm. oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I attend a, a really special transformational festival each year called Beloved. And, you know, the first time I went, I felt like a complete stranger there. Of course I was. And I was, you know, kind of shy a little bit about what it was. I didn't really understand everything that was going to happen there. But then I found, you know, that each year I show up, I'm starting to recognize those people and there's starting to be a family experience there. And then I'm starting to see those people back in Portland at the aesthetic dance community I attend or, you know, the Mount Tabor that's by my house. And then you start to build community outside of those unique church experiences mm -hmm. because you find your co-journeyers along the way and then you find the people that you resonate within those larger communities and start to form smaller communities so i guess i'm just encouraging people to think outside the box to keep expanding and keep growing and you know keep reimagining different ways um or deepening mm. those ways of, mm. of the sacred. Mm. But as these communities form, you've mentioned a couple of elements that seem to be fairly core. Mm -hmm. And you talked about, um, for you, an experience that was collaborative and co-creating. So that's one really core thing you'd like to see as you form a sacred community. What are some of the core elements you find need to be there as new communities and sacred communities are formed? Yeah, I have noticed some key elements. Um, and I would say a key element is a focus on eco-ethics, sustainability. Um, and that can look a, a, in a variety of different ways. That can be, you know, creating an organic gardening project. That can be going into your neighborhood and joining together with people in your community to do natural building. Um, there's an organization called the City Repair Project in Portland. It's a beautiful organization. And they do natural building projects in different neighborhoods. So it's not like they're just doing it at their site. There's not a building that they live in, right? So they facilitate neighborhoods coming together, so people in communities coming together and working on natural building projects. Now that can look like a cob bench that's in the shape of a dragon or a shared library where people drop off things and you can go get books, or a 
um, a, you know, sort of a, a, an area where you can sit, where, you know, you can wait for your bus or your friend, where there's covered from the rain, or a big, beautiful mandala painting in an intersection. So different things like that create community experiences um, for people that, that, that can be very meaningful to them. So eco-ethics, permaculture, sustainability, I think that's a key essential part. Um, a safe container so that you can show up fully as you are. And that means that people are respectful of your boundaries. That means that you ask for consent and that you respect whatever answer is given to you. That means that um, you don't judge someone for wherever they're at, who they are, what they look like, what they're wearing, how much money they make, their gender, their sexual orientation. Safe space for people to be vulnerable and to have healing experiences. Um, a, a shared values, and, and that looks different for wherever you are, right? That can be um, any number of different things, but there needs to be shared values, um, basic agreements around how that community is going to operate, um, a facilitator that will guide those community uh, gatherings. Um, those, those are some of the elements. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Sacred music, sacred art, um, sharing food, sharing music. I'm interested too in practices. We've had lots throughout the history of the church and there's a lot we use currently, but what do you see as potential new practices that might emerge in some of these different spaces and what reclaimed ancient practices do you see? I'm sensing that we're getting more comfortable with some religious elements again, mm -hmm. that there was this real pushback of oh, that's Christian or religious, you know, I'm, I'm not religious, so that doesn't feel comfortable to me. But um, I am seeing the embracing of some of these religious elements like prayer to the divine. Mm. Um, meditation, like I said, gospel music, mm. Sufi music. So, you know, those are pretty religious actually mm -hmm. and yet you have a you know a bunch of people who you know probably 90% of them don't attend religious services standing there tears coming down you know their their faces you know because there's that deeper truth there mm -hmm. there's something that's touching them at a deep level um so i don't think reading scripture and and, and even, even that, like, singing of a hymn, you know, I don't know, there's something that, you know, that doesn't quite, I don't know, it's a little too doctrinated, it's a little too institutionalized. I'm seeing people lean a little bit more toward chanting, which is probably actually saying very similar words. We just don't know it. <laughs> so we're like, oh, my you know. <laughs> I, because it's getting deeper, it's, it's accessing those deeper parts of us that mm. the words aren't really the point. Mm. Mm. It's interesting you began, in reflecting on your own personal story, you began with an experience of holding hands in the circle, which was, a, which was a mysterious experience. You didn't have the language to understand exactly what was going on, but somehow in this experience you felt loved, you felt safe, you felt a part of something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you talked about when you got to the stage of critically evaluating and entering college and so on, and mm -hmm. the, 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 the thoughts that you were uh, engaging with, that's where it lost its, mm -hmm. its groundedness for you. Mm -hmm. So am I hearing you say again that 
you, you see part of the future shape of faith is those mysterious experiences mm-hmm. that are that are beyond our ability to encapsulate in words. And I'm hearing I'm hearing you express a real sense of humility in the face of that mystery. Whereas I wonder if younger generations' experience of church is often you know, we seek to claim the certainty in the face of mystery. But so when you say things like, well, the scriptures is one of the stories, one of the sacred stories that we might bring to the table, but it's not the only one. That's a really humble way of holding our own tradition. Mm-hmm. So would, would you agree that humility is part of part of the approach? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you know, progressive Christianity does a, does a wonderful job approaching it in that way. It's more interested in questioning than absolutes. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's why it's relevant to a lot of us, mm-hmm. is um, we can ask those bigger questions and ponder those without having to have an answer. Mm-hmm. So we can open up the left side of our brain without having to come up with a solution or an answer with the other, you know, the right side of our brain. So it's kind of re... And I, and I do think that's been a little bit of what's... Um, a little bit where we're stuck with, with Christianity in general is, mm-hmm. is trying to uh, in- intellectualize it too much. Whereas, you know, I think if we get back into that, the deeper, you know, label-less, um, the mystery of it and being okay with that mystery... Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the humility to know that we really have no idea. Cool. Okay, so we're going to move to a Q&A from our live audience. We have a roving mic. Gary's going to roll around and get to. Just very interested about what you were saying about this transformational festival. I'm just interested about what it is. A transformational festival is a counterculture festival. And there are shared values they're almost always in nature outdoors. They're inclusive, radical inclusivity. They're usually radically uh, self-reliant, meaning you bring everything you need and you bring out everything you need. So there's a leave no trace policy usually. Um, They have a focus on learning, so there's workshops, and a focus on sacred elements for meditation, temple time, Uh, healing music, um, support networks. And I'm not trying to say that these are the answer or or that they're they're perfect by any means, but what they are are training rooms. They're, They're experiences where people can go and think, okay, something different is possible. I can take off my suit that I wear every day and go to work in, and I can show up in my completely unique self, and I'm valued, and I'm seen, and I can be vulnerable, and I can have healing moments that are glimpses into the divine, both that we see in other people, and that we see in ourselves, that we see in nature, that we experience when we're listening to music, that we experience when we see sacred art, live sacred art usually, visual art. And can I ask, with those can often be mountaintop experiences. Yes. Of, of going up the mountain and experiencing something amazing and being feeling this transformation. So what do you see in between those times? Do, do you see transformation in people's everyday life? They've been and had this experience of perhaps a sharing economy yeah. uh, on, 
for, for a short period of time, they go home and change the way they interact with their neighbours? Absolutely. Yeah, these are shifting culture. Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. They are affecting our societies, and that's growing. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing more neighborhoods come together and share tools and resources and skills. We are seeing people start to use their money to support local artisans and goods. Even if it's a little bit more expensive, there's more spirit-infused, they're more sacred-infused objects then. So we are seeing people begin to express themselves in a more unique way, to dress the way they actually just really want to dress and not try to fit into some, you know, magazine model person stereotype thing. They are seeing people detach from media, community gardens, um, community building projects, supporting our neighbors, social justice movements. There was a question over this. Uh, yeah. Older generations, I think, now overvalue specialists and academics. And I, in my personal journey, am doing a whole lot of different things uh, to, to pursue my own, you know, range of interests. You know, art stuff, I'm doing field naturalists, going and looking at stuff in nature and walking, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff, doing spirituality exercises, you know, pursuing issues in my private life. Um, but none of those things are, are terribly integrated. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. w whether you've got any insights into how you, you manage that, mm -hmm. how you um, reveal all of yourself in all of those aspects. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, my other question, our other question was about um, uh, and you you were asked you asked the question about how to get millennials involved in church. Well, uh, our question is: uh, Do millennials spend any time wondering about how to involve us in what you're doing? It does take a certain amount of um, effort to integrate your own passions and offerings into a larger community. And I think that um, you know, we can learn from a younger generation in that way as well, and that there are digital tools out there. Now, I know that there's a resistance to that sometimes, but they're actually very powerful tools. So Facebook is a powerful tool that we can use. Um, we have a, a thing called WhatsApp. You guys heard about yeah. that? It's actually been really, really useful with my group of friends and meaningful and spiritual. And the reason why is because we talk about events that are happening that we want our friends to go to. And I don't just mean parties. I mean, you know, um, a consent workshop or an aesthetic dance event or um, a discussion on sacred economy. Um, so important, you know, life-changing events. Um, we can say, hey, everyone, there's this great event. I'm going to go to. I'd really like you to be there. Or we can say, I'm at the park. Does anyone want to meet me at the park for a walk? And it's so, right, you, it pops up, so then you're like, oh, I was just biking by. Veer off. You know, hey, guys, and then we're having an impromptu, you know, acro yoga session in the park. Um, or you can say, I had a really rough week. I just found out that my, you know, my uncle is dying, and I'm really struggling with this. Can you please 
pray for me, pray for him, or hold him in our, your thoughts. And people will burst back right away with so much positive energy. So it takes that effort to reach out, and, and it takes some time to create those communities. But, but it's possible. And it could just be six people. My parents, 60s and 70s, have an intentional community on this little island they live on in the Puget Sound in Washington. And they meet once a week at their house, and they have a silent meditation, and then they go around and share what's coming up in their life, and then they share soup. And, and, and you know, there's no alcohol, they just, this is their time for intentional community. And they've kept it small, intentionally, and it's been a very special thing for them. And that extends into their regular life, where they share trucks, they share rides, they share tools, they share eggs. Um, if someone's in the hospital, they go help them. If someone needs a house sitter or a cat sitter. So, you know, it takes a certain amount of effort, but it is possible. And you can use the digital tools that are available today. The second question there was about, do millennials spend any energy uh, wondering about how to invite all the people into their, yes, uh, into their field? Yes, great question. Thank you, you for asking that. When It struck me when Matt asked the question of what are the core convictions that future communities might hold, you went to things like, well, convictions around ecological sustainability, convictions around, and you, and you talked a little bit about um, you know, equality in our, in our world with, with the elite and, the, mm -hmm. and, and everyone else and so on. <laughs> and it struck me as you talked about those things, they're not, they're not age specific. Mm -mm. I mean, I, I, your, your dad yeah. is a great example, but there's plenty of older people in my, in my network who are deeply concerned about environmental Absolutely. issues, who are deeply concerned, concerned about inequality in our, in our society. Absolutely. Even more so in a way. Yeah. I think the difference is, if there is one, um, I don't think millennials really see those differences as much. We're getting to be a lot less labeled, a lot less categorized. It's a shift that's happening, and it's not pervasive. I'm totally generalizing here. And, and I do come from a very progressive city. So a lot of my experiences are things that are going to be happening. Um, but my group of friends that we meet and have these kind of meaningful gatherings, um, a number of them have said, gosh, I wish we could get some older people involved. And they started inviting their neighbors and their parents, and now there's kids. And so, you know, we yearn for a multi-generational experience. We want that, absolutely want that. And- But we don't want our elders' experience. We don't want their experience for us, not, but we want an yeah, experience with them. because it's not really, we can't really relate to it. Mm. I mean, I don't mean to be rude in any way, but whenever I've walked into a church, I've literally felt like I'm going to a funeral. <laughs> and it's not just because everyone has gray hair. It's because of just the feeling, the organ, and the, I don't know, the talk. There's something about it. I'm like, oh, and then they all like want to grab onto you. Who are you? Come back. Give me your name. Sign up. And you're like, ah, just, you know, because I'm curious and I want to go. So there's something that doesn't relate there. And so, but I promise you that if you were to have some of these other kinds of experiences with us, they would relate to you. You would feel resonance there. Mm -hmm. Because it's ancient. That's what, you know, I was trying to get back to is it's not just a future thing. It's ancient. It's going back to those deeper parts of our human beingness, that tribal dancing, you know, that... <laughs>
that, that connecting to the mystery, to earth, to the natural cycles, to seeing me in you, like really seeing it, not just talking about it, feeling that, feeling when I look into your eyes, I see another me on a journey. And wow, you probably have so much wisdom and experience to share with me, just like I might have some new ideas to share with you. In this destabilizing time of change, it's possible to shrink inwards in fear and, and to reflexively turn to what is known or, or what has been. Or it can be a cynical time in which all the energy is about deconstruction and, and a preoccupation with what's not working, determined to, to kick it as hard as possible. However, we kind of feel that we're beyondering our attempts and our energy are about reconstruction. We're asking the questions and we're excited by the possibilities of, of where are we headed? What is the new form that is taking shape? And exploring what new thing is emerging in us and, and around us and, and with us. You've heard two voices so far in this episode, but there's an important third voice, yours. What do you see emerging? What's the future shape of things unfolding in and around you? We're interested in chasing the butterfly, not in mourning the crusty old cocoon. And we're convinced that you are witnesses to emergence. You have emergent stuff you see. You'll have stories of green shoots that you can contribute. So, we want you to be a part of this journey with us. In the near future, we're hoping to create some space to ask questions, to share stories and to collaborate together. We think something is brewing and we want to be new life observers and follow the seeds of emergence when it comes to, to new forms of sacred community. People have already reached out to us through Facebook, sensing that there is a Hoitzfeger to go on. So if you're up for the conversation, we'd love to explore with you. So please get in touch and we'll see what wants to happen. For more information and to go further with these thoughts, you can read more of Philip Clayton's work at philipclayton.net. To engage more with Deshna's work, check out progressivechristianity.org. In particular, if you're wondering what kind of faith language and stories you can use with integrity when talking with children, check out their resource, A Joyful Path. It's a gathering of stories, questions and activities for individuals, parents or communities who are searching for a way to connect children with an authentic spiritual experience that is inclusive, creative and multi-layered. It is heart and nature-centred, joyful, compassionate and intelligent. It's non-dogmatic and interspiritual. This behaviour over belief curriculum connects children with their own inner wisdom. It teaches interdependence, self-awareness, respect for nature, stillness, forgiveness, prayer, meditation and integrity. Using the Bible and other wisdom stories, a joyful path helps children learn how to follow the path of Jesus in today's world. Matt and I have both used and enjoyed a joyful path as a teaching curriculum and a resource for conversation with kids and their parents, so we genuinely encourage you to check it out for yourselves. There are multiple volumes of it now, so it can serve as a curriculum for multiple years, and there are different versions available for different age groups, so go to progressivechristianity.org to check it out. It's a great website. They've even sold the amazing, beyondering, theologically thoughtful Christmas cards in the past. 
join us next episode when we have Peter Rollins on the podcast, exploring the lens of philosophy. He'll help us question our questions. He'll help us try to understand how we understand, to help us see how we see how we see. Something like that. The believer naively thinks that the biblical narrative is there to help them get to heaven, right? A place of perfection and wholeness and completeness, a place where you can have perfect peace and happiness. But actually then you realize, no, I've been recruited into the subversive, clandestine organization of dissidents whose very aim is the opposite, is to blow up heaven and, and find the sacred, not as a dimension outside of the earth, but as a, as a dimension within earth and materiality itself. So join us next time, and thanks for coming Beyondering. Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. This episode was produced by Adam Ball and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, go to www.beyondering.com.au. And I'm addicted to you guys, and I really want to stay. I have to stay, even though I'm afraid. Of Matt or me? Of you. Yes.